1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast on animal studies. I'm Akash Nandachi, regular host of the channel, and today I'm joined by Dr. Antonat Burden and Dr. Anissa Mawani, who together have co-edited the book, Animalia, an Anti-Imperial Bestiary for Our Times, published by Duke University Press in 2020. Dr. Burden is Professor of History and Swanland Endowed Chair of History at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Her research interests include colonial India, the British Empire, gender, and feminism. Dr. Marwani is Professor of Sociology at the University of British Columbia, where her research and teaching areas include, include law and society, historical methods, and social and cultural theory. Dr. Burden, Dr. Marwani, it's a pleasure to have you both here today. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks so much.
0: Thank you.
1: I wondered to begin, if uh, one of you could please introduce how this book and this collaboration came to be, and how your previous research led you towards this subject.
0: So, Animalia uh, was in, or is the outcome of, I think, five or six years of conversation and collaboration uh, between Antoinette and myself, um, and it really emerged out of uh, friendship between two feminist scholars who are interested in thinking about how to push the field of uh, Empire studies beyond the human world um, and to uh, think about how to write empire history outside of the monograph form. Um, so we had uh, the book has 19 collaborators and you know really couldn't have been possible without the, uh, work of Miriam Angris our editor at Duke. Um, she was really instrumental in helping us to uh, make this project legible to reviewers and to um, to others. Um, and you know I should really say that our collaboration uh, was, a ver- completely virtual one. So we, um, you know, most of our correspondence was by email. Um, and of course this preceded COVID and our zoom world. Um, and we, we, invited people that we whose work we admired and whose work we had been reading um, some of them uh, were people who were embedded in Empire history and others were working in other fields but working on um, animals and thinking about race and uh, colonialism and you know and so Animalia is the product of uh, of all of this
1: I see and Um, Dr. Burden, I know that you've previously written, uh, in the format of a bestiary, uh, an ABC of Queen Victoria's empire in 2017. And I wondered what was it like to to revisit this format and, and what is it about it that makes it, uh, an effective learning tool?
2: So yes, you're right. I did, uh, try out the ABC Darium form and really liked it because it allows for a kind of um, non-linear approach to the writing of empire history, and uh, as Renisa said, we were very interested in thinking about alternative uh, forms of delivery for imperial narratives, which, in their um, in their linear form, we think often tend to reproduce some of the violences and exclusions of empire. So. Uh, as with the ABC of Queen Victoria's Empire, uh, so too with the bestiary, we wanted to address this question of the relationship between the uh, animal and uh, the human and non-human world um, by thinking about how to access, what kinds of angles of entry can we, can we create for readers uh, that allow them, sure, they can read it serially if they want from, you know, cover to cover, or they can jump in and out. And there's a lot of cross-referencing in the book. Uh, so they can compare the okapi with the ibis or the lion with the scorpion, uh, depending. At, at, we saw some thematic resonances across there, and we signal that to readers. And we certainly think it's a very effective pedagogical tool, especially for undergraduate students who... Um, somewhat stereotypically tend to be of the TLDR generation, too long didn't read. And so these short entries with the, with the images uh, connected to them offer uh, even those readers a uh, kind of pathway into the complexities of imperial history.
1: Definitely, I can, I can empathize. And Dr. Marwani, coming from a background in sociology, I know, I know that's one of your research interests is historical methodology. Were you familiar with this uh, format? And what did, did, did something inspire you to write one for our times as the title implies?
0: So I wasn't, I mean, I was only familiar with the format insofar as, um, you know, I had read, uh, Antoinette's, uh, ABC of Queen Victoria's empire. And so I was, for me, like I've always been really sort of committed to the monograph and, you know, when Antoinette and I first started talking about this project, I was, really resistant to the idea of having short entries. I felt like I wanted, you know, more, longer. Um, and so I I feel like I've actually really learned a lot uh, from Antoinette about the importance of form and, you know, that it's not just about the content of, it's not just the content that is potentially disruptive, but it's also how we present it and how we write it. So of course, there's the issue of readability, but we also wanted to, you know, give readers, um, an opportunity to connect, to make connections that they might not be able to make in, um, a more traditional monograph. And we wanted to have contributors who are writing about, um, you know, different, uh, geographical regions and, uh, slightly different periods. And, uh, even to have a kind of inter-imperial conversation um or a conversation around you know the connections we might see between the British and uh the rising US empire at the time. And so um so I was, you know, I feel like I really learned a lot. And we had decided that we wanted this to be um, you know, an anti-imperial bestiary for our times. And that's a reference i think to a number of things so the first is um you know in terms of challenging empire history and trying to sort of destabilize the primacy of the human we were also very much thinking about the current moment and our um and you know concerns around the planetary crisis and the kind of narratives around that we have seen really proliferate around the Anthropocene. And, you know, part of what we were hoping is that we were hoping that um, we would encourage readers to think about the history of the British Empire, for example in this discussion of planetary crisis and climate catastrophe, because that conversation doesn't often or always happen. Um, And even when it does, it is highly contested and disputed. And so we wanted to position the uh, British empire and imperial and colonial violence as being really central to this discussion about uh, the Anthropocene. Um, And so that's one way in which this is for our times but also as Antoinette pointed out, we wanted, you know, we wanted to create a forum where um, readers could read in a nonlinear way, uh, partly to disrupt what Antoinette has uh, done in much of her writing um, around, you know, the the patterns of empire as being rise and fall, uh, troubling that. And we felt like the uh, bestiary forum could actually allow us, or encourage us, or or invite our readers to actually um, trouble those kinds of narrative and temporal arcs. And as as we've completed this project, I think what we're seeing is how many of those temporal arcs are also visible in some of the discussions about the um, about the current planetary crisis.
1: And. During this process, when, when you're coming up with this format and you're reaching out to the 19 contrib- contributors who, who you've mentioned, how was the selection process determined? How, how did everyone choose which animals to, to write about? I know that Dr. Burden, you you wrote about uh, lion and scorpions and, and Dr. Marwani about cattle and ibis. Um, how, how were these determined? And did you find that the contributions had a similar objective and approach uh, when, when when they came in?
2: So, um, I'll, I'll answer that, but I'll, I'll start by rem- reminding Renisa that when we first talked about doing the bestiary, the, the citation you sent me was Hugh Raffles Insectopedia. Yes. So you were already, you were already immersed in a kind of alternative form, I think, uh, and, and predisposed to appreciate it, um, I think
0: appreciate for sure, but I don't think that I had the, uh, I felt like I didn't have the sort of skills to actually pursue it. Um, so yes, I was reading raffles um, and, you know, and I was really sort of inspired by Encyclopaedia, but I didn't, I didn't know how to actually do that. And so this has been such a amazing uh, process um, of learning and
2: uh, yeah. It's been fun. Um, the process for choosing which animals to include was, um, hurly burly, as they say, I think, um, Mm -hmm. you've, uh, referred to the fact that we each authored two, um, animal entries. And, uh, I will say that the, the whole idea was originated, uh, in my discovery of the image for the scorpion, probably 10 years ago. Uh, it's a really powerful image from a 19th century periodical. It has the, um, figure of John Bull in a pith helmet in the Second Anglo-Afghan War with a copy of the Kandahar newspaper in his pocket, stamping out underfoot, um, scorpions who are half animal, half Afghan tribal man with Queen the Empress of India, um, looking on behind, and I came across this image, and I just was absolutely um, amazed by it, and really did not know what to make of the of the uh, scorpion, half scorpion, half human uh, enemy, alien underfoot, and it was partly my attempt to retrain myself as a Victorianist as an empire historian so with the help of Renisa and 19 other people and the whole field of animal studies right to, to, to try to figure out what this image could possibly mean or what it could be made to mean so um, we had a couple of stakes in the ground in in that sense and then we went to um, individuals whose work we really admired and respected for example uh, one of our first invitations was to the the doyen of this field, Harriet Ritvo, uh, who volunteered happily to do quagga, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, we picked a few other people that we, whose work again we really respected, whether or not some of them already had a lot of animal chops, others others of them didn't, and we were asking them to kind of turn their attention toward it, um, and it, so it was you know, there was a kind of um, intention to it. But as you can imagine, we had to fulfill um, 26 really pre-categorized slots. And so it was a balancing act down to the very end. And, and as we often say, um, laughingly now, but it wasn't so funny as we were living through it, you know, when you have a book, an edited collection that has 10 essays in it, if someone drops out, it's actually not it's hardly consequential, but if you have a bestiary and somebody drops out, you're in big trouble. So um, we have to thank Utatia, our our colleague, uh, who stepped in in the eleventh hour and saved us. We acknowledge him in the acknowledgments for um, just such a just such a, a drop out uh, situation. Um, so uh, I don't know, uh, Rhys, if you want to talk about Cattle and Ivis for yourself.
0: Well, first I'll say that, um, you know, I had originally really hoped to write on, uh, write B is for um, Uh B. Um, I forgot
1: that. And,
0: (laughs) uh, yeah, and, you know, I was really excited about that possibility. And then, um, you know, we had this amazing um, entry on BOAR. And so uh, that was also, it required some uh, it required us to be, to adapt. Right. And, um, uh, so I think we had sort of staked out, I mean, I had decided that I would love to write on cattle, um, and I'm not a expert on cattle by any means. Um, and I didn't even actually know what I was going to write, but I had been following the, The sort of uh, anti caste and anti Muslim violence uh, that was sort of catalyzing around cattle in India. Um, And so I felt like I, you know, I might be able to actually have something to contribute to that. And then also my training as a, a legal scholar, I was really interested in. Um, you know, how cattle and agriculture are sort of seen as, you know, one origin story of Western legality. Um, so, uh, and, but I still didn't know what I would, what I would write about. And I have um, a graduate student who, uh, he was actually working on um, law and uh, pesticides. And then you know, he was he. He and I were working together, um, and I asked him to sort of look for some images because part of what I think makes the book really interesting is the kind of um, imagery that you know each of the um, entries or chapters sort of centers on. And so I asked him to help uh, to find some images that we might use in the book or that we might suggest to contributors. And one of the images that he found was. The one that is in the uh, in the that made it into the book. It's a 1922 um, image called the Cattle Drummer, and it's from the London Punch. And you know what was really sort of I mean, there's all sorts of very fascinating things about this image, but what was really fascinating to me was this imposing uh, ship in the background. Um, And so part of what you know I write about is. the cattle trade between uh, Canada and the sort of Atlantic ports, Montreal in particular, and uh, Britain, and the deaths that happen at sea. And again, this was like completely unexpected. I wasn't even um, anticipating that this would be, you know, part of the focus of the of the entry on cattle. And uh, it has taken me in all sorts of new and unexpected directions, um, so it's, you know, part of what made this really fun to work on was that it, it, every single sort of, um, contributor remarked on, um, how it, you know, this seemed like a kind of adventure for them. Um, and even those, even the ones, the people who had been writing about specific animals, um, And, and then ibis, I mean, I, we didn't even know, like, I wasn't sure nobody took eye. And when we were thinking about, uh, eye animals like iguana, um, and then ibis, and then it ended up being a really fascinating sort of, uh, following this bird ended up being a really fascinating sort of, uh, entry point into Imperial science and, uh, Egyptology and, um, sort of inter-imperial debates around, uh, monogenesis and polygenesis. And so, uh, you know, but again, this wasn't, I I wasn't anticipating writing on I, um, and really it was because that was one of the entries that we couldn't find anyone to write on.
1: Right. Uh, You you were cutting out just a little bit there, but I I think it, it came through clearly. Um, You've both now mentioned uh, the both of the power of images, and also, you know, from Punch magazine and Doctor Burden in this uh, image of the scorpion. Um, you know, there's this great um, collection of periodical caricatures that employ animals uh, in, in the kind of nineteenth century and 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 before and, and after as well, but. Um, The prevalence of animals and animal symbolism during this colonial era and just their use in national and imperial emblems and and the naming of ships and monuments. Um, I'm interested in how this is used to project the narratives of empire. And I wonder if you could um, discuss this process and some of its tropes and, and the significance that these associations held for the animals themselves.
2: So it's such a cliche to um, remark uh, that the English are kind of preternaturally preoccupied by animals, um, and that they have a love for animals, and that they have a kind of admiration, and that they they take animals, they've domesticated animals in in the 19th century and and up you know even before in unprecedented ways historically and compared to other cultures, and I think one of the things that the book helps us to appreciate is the extent to which, like everything else in in English national culture or British um, culture writ large, um, this nationalizing affect is also implicitly an imperializing affect. And you cannot disentangle nation and empire. And so there is a kind of co-creation here of the imperial animal at the height of you know, the, 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 or the growing expansion of the British empire across the 19th century. Um, I guess, you know, too, and I'll, I'll be curious to hear what Renisa has to say about this. I think that, um, there's, there's a lot that is being actively produced in this period that we rather take for granted. So, um, The imperial lion, for example, which I did Ellis for lion, is really being constructed as a figure during this period. It doesn't exist as such with its associations, not just with empire, but also with monarchy um, to such a great degree and in um, such a variety of representational forms until the 19th century. And so one of the things I had not fully appreciated until recently and Some other conversations that we've been having about the book is the extent to which the 19th century is actually a moment of generation for the very images that come to be retroactively associated with empire building and other forms of, um, you know, species violence. Uh, Renisa, what's your sense of that?
0: So I think, I mean, so... We were really, or at least when we started this, working on this project, I was really sort of interested in how, um, animals were used as, um, you know, uh, as markers of racial inferiority and, uh, the ways in which certain, um, indigenous and colonized and enslaved, uh, populations were sort of identified as, um, uh, uh, killable species through animal representations, and I'm thinking specifically of cockroaches and of uh, dogs, and um, you know we can think of many examples. But I think one of the um, one of the ambitions of the book is also to think outside of the representational, right? So, um, you know, as Antoinette pointed out, we wanted to sort of think about the significance of the animal at this particular moment in the British Empire and how how important uh, animals are. But we also wanted to move beyond the representational and to think about uh, the material and also racist force of animals and the wider relations in which they were embedded and shaped and created, right? So even troubling the distinction between human and animal and thinking about the ways in which that took force um, in this particular historical moment and through both representational, but also uh, material and affective practices. So, you know, we were interested in the the rich and powerful symbols, but also in uh, you know, thinking about animals as these intimate companions and also as these kind of, um, feral, uh, uh, I don't want to say agent, but a kind of feral (laughs) figure. (laughs) Um, so, so we were really, you know, there, we were thinking very much about the representational, but we were also really interested in the kind of, uh, material and, uh, uh, racial force of various animal species. And um, I will say that, you know, one of the reasons why I think this this period is really significant also is because you see the ways in which um, colonists and settlers are actually taking animals and with them to various places in the British Empire. And, you know, animals that are not indigenous to those places then end up being very dis- Like these destructive ecological forces, uh, unintended, of course. Um, And so, you know, to return to one of the earlier questions that you asked about what makes this an anti imperial bestiary for our times, again, it's to really think about the significance of um, these circulations and how they've resulted in uh, deforestation and in, you know, uh, implications for the planet that we're just starting to grapple with today.
1: And so you've mentioned, uh, various of these associations and processes, and I wonder if you could just introduce what you find to be the role of animals in the British empire and perhaps specifically in the 19th century.
0: So we make the argument that, uh, that, the British Empire was entangled with animal life at every turn. And, you know, we're in the, when we first started working on the volume, we were interested in how the animalization of human life and the humanization of animals became really key um, features of imperial biopolitics and species supremacy, um, determining who could live and who could die. Um, and then, you know, by, uh, centering the empire and its violent politics of racial and species supremacy, we we're trying to think about the ways in which animals reinscribed imperial power, but also troubled it in important ways, as as uh, Antoinette just noted. Um, so the you know um, Antoinette just discussed the fact that. Um, that empire was never sort of preordained or given that there are always, you know, that there were revolts, that there were, uh, uprisings. Um, and we wanted to sort of, uh, think about the empire in the context of the sort of trouble that animals posed. Right. Um, so, uh, they animals were, were very disruptive, um, they ran away, they attacked humans, uh, they attacked colonists, they attacked settlers. And so that was the kind of uh, dynamic that we were hoping to capture in the book. Um, you know, that by uh, inviting our readers to think about animals as these kind of uh, domestic, but also feral and also disruptive forces, that we might actually uh, offer a different set of insights about empire as. Um, this kind of process or project in the making?
2: One of the hardest things about that um, then and now is to exceed the parameters of liberal agency for animals. And so we tend to use the, the language of disruption and trouble so that we don't sort of locate uh, a sovereignty Or an agency in the animals that we're trying to think about. Um, and, you know, that I think is a really interesting arena for debate that we hope that the collection as a whole will generate. Um, and it's a, it's an issue that I think is of interest both to empire historians and animal studies folks. And thinking these two things together, I think really enriches the conversation.
1: Yeah, I, I was I was about to ask you about animal agency, but I think that, that does address it. Um, d- during this time, um, and I don't need to get into too much of the nitty gritty, but were animals in these animal practices? Did you find that as these sites of cultural exchange are taking place uh, w- w- within empire, um, how how do animals fit into cultural or religious compromises and exchanges and w- w- within this framework?
2: I think um, we rather uh, eschew the encounter model. Um, and as Renisa, I think said a few minutes ago, we think of entanglement um, as a more productive way of describing those relationships. And I know, I don't know, Renisa, what you're thinking of when you think entanglement, but I think of Tony Ballantine. I know lots of people are using entanglement now, but um, Tony Ballantyne's book on Um, Christianity in New Zealand uh, and Maori engagements with it um, uh, is is one kind of model for that kind of thinking. So um, I'd have to think hard about the instances of religious compromise across the, I mean, obviously um, indigenous uh, and uh, uh, colonized practices came into constant, I hate, you know, again, we get trapped in the kind of encounter, but there was a constant intermingling of those um, practices and relationships. But I don't think they form the dominant theme in this particular collection. Although, Renisa, you certainly, you know, spent some time thinking, as you said, about the ibis and its spiritual connotation. So maybe you have a deeper reflection on that.
0: Yeah, so I mean, the two examples that I can think of um, in terms of sort of religious and cultural uh, significance of uh, animals in the in the British Empire are the ibis, right? Which really featured prominently in Egyptian uh, mythology. And what I'm uh, what I write about in my entry was how the ibis was actually appropriated and then redeployed by imperial scientists, and how. Um, the sacred ibis became really key to 19th century French, British and American debates over, uh, imperial and racial science. And then the other example is the raccoon. Um, and this entry was written by my colleague, Daniel Heath justice, who talks about the raccoon as this kind of racial as a kind of unstable racial figure, um, that illustrates the entanglements between Anglo-Imperial uh, projects, so not just the British, but also the American, um, and anti-Black and anti-Indigenous violence. So in the U.S., uh, you know, he writes about the um, the way in which uh, the coon, as it was called, became the symbol of Black animality in antebellum slavery and in the period of Jim Crow. But for Algonquin-speaking peoples, um, Um, Daniel Heath Justice points out the animal that is called a raccoon was actually identified um, as a Rukenem and was used to describe a neighbor, relative, and companion to indigenous people. And this is in Algonquin uh, pow. this is an Algonquin Powhatan word. So we see the way this sort of this figure of the raccoon um, that we have identified in very particular ways Um, has, you know, has these different meanings of uh, uh, in among Algonquin speaking people, and also in the US and the British uh, imperial context. And so those are the kinds of sort of um, uh, those are the kinds of histories that we were trying to sort of uh, elicit and think about um not just in terms of encounter as as Antoinette pointed out, we don't like that word but um, but thinking about the kinds of contests, the kinds of inter-imperial and uh, cultural contests over these animal figures and species.
1: And um, as far as these contests and and disruption and entanglement, um, you've mentioned Dr. Ronnie earlier, um, you know the, the kind of uh, our, our, our today, our, our context and, and how conscious we are of climate change and, and the impetus to, to write a bestiary for our times now. And I wonder if you would speak to some of those themes um, that you might have noticed um, either in your own articles or in those of other contributors in regards to endemic and foreign species and biodiversity and, and the, the, the natural world and empire.
0: Well, so some of the, uh, some of our contributors, and I'm thinking specifically of uh, Harriet Ritvo and the uh, quagga, and then also we have two entries on, um, on whales, the northern right Atlantic whale, and then uh, our, Jonathan Goldberg Hiller wrote an entry on uh, the whale and writing about the whale hunt and the involvement of indigenous people. And I mean, in both of these cases, uh, we see that, you know, these species are either extinct or nearly extinct. Um, and I think in our contemporary moment, animals and, you know, certain species of animals have become a kind of barometer uh, for, you know, climate change and climate catastrophe. Um, we, uh, hear about, you know, honeybees, for example, or other insect species, um, and you know what scientists, many scientists and entomologists, are telling us is that this has something to do with, you know, dramatic changes in and uh, in ecolo- in local ecologies, um, and so you know these are sort of uh, the most obvious sort of points um, at which to think about the current. Uh, Planetary crisis, but in my own uh, entry on cattle, right? Thinking about how you know cattle have become this um, uh, have become really central to you know concerns around uh, climate catastrophe, and how uh, many international organizations are recommending that we move more towards a plant based diet, and you know, or to other protein rich sources, so that uh, the planet can be, and food production can be more sustainable. Um, so we, you know, it, it's not, it wasn't a a sort of explicit focus of all of our contributors, but it does come up in various places and either in terms of extinction or in terms of, um, you know, contemporary concerns around food production and, uh, food and consumption. Yeah.
1: Uh, Dr. Burton, is there anything you'd like to add to, uh,
2: Yeah, I would just say that um, in addition and related to what Renisa has been saying, uh, the book raises interesting questions, I think, as we've been saying about um, the relationship of animals to the stability of the empire, and also the relationship of animal worlds to broader environmental histories. And I suppose in the Academy, those arenas of study sometimes touch and sometimes don't. And I think one of the things that um, the lens of empire helps to bring to bear is the ways in which those apparently discrepant historiographical spaces or scholarly endeavors need to be more in conversation with each other. So I guess what I like about the, the bestiary is the way it can move between analytical scales. Um, so you could really get immersed in the kind of mud and dirt of the animal world and think about some of the questions that you've asked us about today. And you can also um, think uh, uh, through the animals about really big conceptual epistemological and theoretical frameworks that um, are shaping not just the fields we work in, but of course the worlds that we're living in and trying to survive as well.
1: And do, this is a question for both of you. Do, did you find um, having completed this, and it's it's such a uh, you know, wonderful collection, and the difficulties in bringing together all these various contributors? Did you find that you learn something about animals in w- within academia that that can be used in interdi- inter- interdisciplinary way? That that maybe you know the way we've been writing animal history or environmental history, and 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 uh, you know that, 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 that there, there's an approach that um, is limited at the moment or, or, or needs rethinking?
0: Funny you should ask. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we're actually uh, embarking or engaged in another collaboration. Um, and this one is with Samantha Frost, who's also at the University of Illinois Urbana And who's the author of Biocultural Creatures Toward a New Theory of the Human? Um, And so we're, you know, we've been thinking um, with uh, Sam Frost about other ways of uh, writing empire history, of the kinds of challenges that her book might uh, pose for, um, you know, for the kind of work that we're trying to do uh, to destabilize the human, to think more. in terms of entanglements and I think uh as Antoinette puts it, turbulence and composition, recomposition. So we do we're, you know, we feel like this book has, if I can speak for Antoinette as well, we feel like this book has really sort of scratched the surface of a much bigger conceptual and methodological challenge, not just to empire um, history, although, you know, that is really important and that's our real like our primary focus, but also to other fields as well. And I'm sure Antoinette, did you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad that you, I mean, our collaboration with Sam is very much on our mind because we had a colloquium with some colleagues and her uh, in January, and we're constructing an edited collection out of that. But I think the tail end of what Renee said is what I think is really significant when you ask the question about, you know, how does it reorient us um, we really are still, I think, trapped in the kind of sovereign subject model, despite all of the assaults on it over the last 50 years. Um, and it becomes really obvious when you think about um, the relationship between animals and empire. I do think we are trying to imagine um, an ecosystem in which um, there is um, processes of circularity, composition and recomposition that make the kind of um, singularity or separation of uh, humans and animals, of the earth and the natural world and empire, uh, impossible to segregate out, and and that is the work of I think um, you know provincializing the human and also decolonizing uh, history uh, writ large, and of course that's the subject of a whole nother podcast. We won't go down that route, but hopefully. People will be tantalized into imagining how the Animalia book leads to conversations about really resisting some of the colonizing structures that inform how we think about history and also the Anthropocene.
1: I, I think it definitely will, and I'm looking very forward to uh, to, to reading that when when it comes out. <laughs> um, Dr. Burden, Dr. Wani, it was such a pleasure to speak with both of you today. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank,
2: thank you. you so much.
1: Um, For our listeners, uh, we've been speaking about Animalia, uh, an anti-imperial bestiary for our times, published by Duke University Press in 2020. Thank you very much for tuning in.